Welcome back to the Everything is Lessons podcast, an inventory of wisdom. I'm your host, Ryan Curlbaum. Thank you so much for joining us for another wonderful episode with my former pastor and current interfaith chaplain, Dr. Joel Daniels. I have known Joel since we moved to Boston 11 years ago, where he jump-started a faith community in Somerville called Reunion. Beyond his spiritual influence, Joel has been someone who continues to see life through a prism, to consider, acknowledge, and, and understand multiple perspectives at the same time. His greatest strength, beyond a sense of humor, is his ability to articulate and navigate the intersection of mental and spiritual health. His way of living inspires people to embrace life with a heightened awareness, with consideration, and with abundant care. During our conversation today, you're going to hear a lot about the importance of healing as a process, something that will inevitably touch us all. This conversation is worth your time and attention, so grab a pen and paper and let's see what he can teach us with his lesson, Healing is Continuous. Here we go. Joel Daniels, welcome to the Everything is Lessons podcast. Thanks, Ryan, for having me. Thrilled to be here. Uh, let's just start this, uh, get this out of the way quickly. Do I need to address you as Dr. Joel this entire time? It's awkward, but Reverend Dr. <laughs> <laughs> Daniels. My kids say Father Reverend Dr. Daniels, but, you know, we go back, so... Father Joel. Reverend Dr. Daniels, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the, on the podcast. Um, you know, it's funny. This season, I interviewed uh, Natasha, the one baby, in uh, episode two. And we were laughing because she and Kelly first met uh, meeting you at, at, I think, Diesel or maybe Starbucks at Davis Square at like one of your classic 6 a.m. meetings that you used to have. I love those. And I said, I said, is Joel Daniels the earliest meeting maker that I've ever met? And I think you are. I think you're the, I think. Well, and then we started meeting to work out, if you recall. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time that I ever uh, realized how good coffee is <laughs> from the MIT little cafe there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh man, I think uh, I think it's really going to be something. This will be a great conversation. Uh, as someone who finds the most productive and deep conversations happening before the sun rises, and I, I feel like you have a secret to share, and that's what today will be about. Yeah, we'll see for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you for being here. This is going to be really great. Um, I always like to start these things in a similar way. Um, I know you quite well. We've known each other for 11 years, believe it or not. And um, I always like to help kind of introduce people to you who may not know you as well as I do, but a lot of folks who listen to this uh, will know you. Um, but I wrote this about you just to, to start us off. I said, Joel is someone who inspires you to live more deeply. We've known Joel since we moved to Boston 11 years ago, where he jump-started a faith community in Somerville called Reunion. Beyond his spiritual influence, Joel has been someone who continues to see life through a prism, to consider, acknowledge, and understand multiple perspectives at the same time. 
his greatest strength beyond his sense of humor <laughs> is his ability to articulate and navigate the intersection of mental and spiritual health. He is a natural teacher of awareness and consideration, a pastor of generosity and care. Does that, does that cover it? <clears throat> well, that's, of course, way too generous. I would say that I stumbled through this thing and luckily meet nice, wonderful people like you and Kelly and family. So it's way beyond what is deserved, but that's very kind and generous of you. Let's uh, let's start with how you ended up. You currently live in Upland, California. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you ended up there. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a lot of story that that I'll share uh, today and and just sort of weave through some different ideas, hopefully. Uh, but this part of of the journey was kind of unexpected. I I of course was in Boston. We were a part of a great community in Somerville that Ryan had just mentioned. I had an opportunity to do a master's at Boston University and really just fell in love with learning. Uh, I had a great mentor there. His name is Robert Neville. He is the person who said out of the blue a little bit like, hey, I, I think you might be able to continue um, to get a PhD. And I I worked hard in school, but I was never somebody that was obviously moving toward this level of education. So mm. to have somebody affirm that I think was incredibly meaningful. Uh, also the church community, we had been uh, a part of this new startup for about five years. And, <laughs> and Ryan would know because the early meetings were because I would wake up at 430 uh, AM to get ready for church on Sunday wow. because start set up at like six. And then, uh, of course, Ryan and Kelly were instrumental in all that. And then for a while they were doing two services and then we would tear down. And then honestly, we were just so tired. We <laughs> loved the community, but after many, many years, uh, we, it just felt like a transition point. So, mm -hmm. The sped up version now is I went to Georgetown to do a PhD in religion and uh, was a chaplain on campus there, a chaplain in residence. When I left and finished in graduation, uh, five years and one sentence there, I taught at American University. Oddly enough, uh, my main position was East Asian religion and philosophy. So if you had told previous Joel, a pastor that's like, hey, let's start a church, that you're going to teach something completely different, it, mm. it would have been ridiculous. Regardless, I'm teaching, and then I help with a funeral. And during the funeral, I sort of felt like this part of my life is probably not quite done yet. And so we thought, mm. how do you combine ministry? Because I did that for 10 years with academics. And then this chaplain position at the Claremont College is in uh, Claremont, California, came open, it all kind of worked out, and we made this crazy move from the DC area all the way out to California. And we've been here for about six months. We're going through a terribly 
terribly cold winter yesterday <laughs> at me too so <laughs> i'm so sorry for you yeah, so it's 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 been great though honestly yeah. though when we moved here for the first two months it did not rain there were no clouds and it was very uh strange and we actually felt sad until a cloud came <laughs> everybody's like what's wrong with you it's cloudy we're like this is the best uh, but we we live here and grateful for all the opportunities that are here and it's been a really nice transition to get back into ministry within a chaplain setting. Mm. But there's a lot within that, too. But we're really grateful to be here, to say the least. Yeah, that's that's a, an unbelievable uh, turn of events. <laughs> yeah. uh, I love that. So, uh, as you know, this is a, a podcast where we ask um, all the guests, the people who I really admire, I always bring them on the show. And then I ask them what their three word lesson is for life. Um so I always like to ask this question about what your lesson is, of course, and then how did you come to learn it? Yeah. <clears throat> so the lesson overall, and, and it could be formed and shaped in many different ways, is that healing is continuous. So the 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 larger sort of arc of this is that as a minister for a long time, I had not experienced all of life. We're all growing. We're all changing. I think each stage we reflect and realize maybe some things our parents said or grandparents, as we get older, we're surprised that we see it differently. Mm. And, you know, I remember I became a youth minister at about 22 and had really unique contexts where there was a lot of uh, difficulties in the communities that that I got to serve. And even when we were in Boston, we would have different situations where people would have extreme, um, maybe depression or anxiety. Mm. And I remember at the time I had not experienced anything like that. So for me, I, I didn't have a context. I thought that I may understand what that meant. Um, but I, I also sort of just registered as there's something that's probably an, an uncomfortable feeling that, that they're having a tough time. So a, a lot of things changed. And quite honestly, it was when we were transitioning from Somerville. So my whole life, I grew up in a Pentecostal community. Uh, there's so much positive about it. So much that I really appreciate. I still would say that I'm Pentecostal, just in a different kind of way. But one of the difficult things was it was the type of community, and I've only reflected on this a little bit more as I've gotten older. It was a type of community that was um, every week growing up as a kid, it was if you die after this service and you have not come forward. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be destined for eternity in hell. So I remember like not being able to sleep. And yeah. <laughs> I, I just, the, the, it was normal though, you know, that, that, that part of life was normal. I, I, I didn't think anything of it except this is the way that, that it is. So there was this push of sort of a concern for hell, but then also there's another side. If, if you're good enough, then you can really get past that and do great things for God. Mm -hmm. I still have a belief in that. It, it may look a little bit differently. So the, the biggest thing that I could ever dream of to do for God was to be a part of starting a church. That, that's 
there's not much bigger that I conceived of. Maybe people out there have a very different vision, hmm. but for whatever reason, that that was the height of what it meant to love God well and mm-hmm. to almost earn that ability to avoid this damnation that I had heard so much about. So over the years, that was our goal, really. Heather and I, my wife, uh, was to find a way to do that. And we had this great opportunity in Somerville and a lot of stuff aligned to partner with Reunion and to start this uh, church location in Somerville, where the other was in Back Bay in Boston. But I remember uh, it was like two years into it. And I remember one day sitting there and I thought, oh, we started a church. Like mm-hmm. it kind of hit me like it, it is here. Mm-hmm. So much love. Oh my goodness. It's it, amazing people. But I had never really imagined that that would happen. And then at the time, I, like 28 or 29, realizing I don't know what else there is. Mm. Like, I I don't know what is the other thing to achieve to Mm. essentially make my life worth being here. So almost this sort of what is that next thing that that allows my life to warrant its existence? And and it was a, a strange time. And. I think that sort of was a strange feeling, and it was part of the reason that we decided to transition also a little bit. But if you imagine your life, and if you imagine like the biggest thing you could ever achieve, and then again, big or not, I'm not acting like this, what what we were a part of was anything more than anything else. But in my mind, I'd created it to be that. And then to feel like it had it we come into existence. And then when we realized we were going to transition to something else and I was going to go for a PhD, mm-hmm. my whole identity was essentially gone. So I wasn't going to be a pastor. I wasn't even doing something that was overly grand in the scheme of things for God. And at that point, it was a pretty unexpected uh, level of depression, mm-hmm. like pretty severe. Mm-hmm. I remember saying to one of the other people on staff, you know, the normal like, hey, how's it going? And I would say like, I don't know what is happening, but I am just feeling really weird. And and my wife is a social worker. And one night when we were putting the kids to bed, I was just feeling pretty numb. And afterward, I said to her, like, you know, it's it's weird because, you know, I'm smiling, but I don't I don't actually feel anything. Mm-hmm. And she said, how about you take this quick test online for me? And it was, I only found out later, it was like a depression scale. And it said, I tallied it up. And at the bottom, it said, seek help immediately. Wow. And I laughed and said, what is this? And then she explained it to me. And even now, like I feel the emotions. And she and I said, I think I'm going crazy. Mm. And to, like, say it out loud, I just started bawling, just mm. like, uncontrollably. And this became a pretty big, long stretch. One time, 
before church, Ryan, you were, may have been there. I There was an upstairs in this theater, and I was yeah. just sitting down. And I text my wife, and I was like, I can't move. Like, I can't do this. And, and she's super fantastic. And, of course, we continued to move forward. But that really was a pretty big moment that this type of lesson, I think, is has become much more personal. And then as a chaplain now and before and a pastor and hearing these types of stories repeated uh, over and over, mm. I, I think I have uh, viewed it differently. And even again, we can talk about sort of the transition because <laughs> there's another part of this story, Ryan, that I'm not going to say now, but when the pandemic hit, I discovered I also can experience extreme anxiety. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll just pause there for a minute only to say, I, I think for me, this has become so important because I hear these stories. Again, they're very different and everybody has a different background, a different way in which they connect to this. But it seems like we tend to experience the world in these ways that that leave us or bring us to these places that hmm. have mental, physical, <clears throat> emotional uh, needs that kind of come up. And then I feel very passionate about as best as I can with a little bit that I can offer uh, at least help people in these types of healing movements hmm. that uh, I like to think that, that God and many religions, as we'll talk about, sort of, sort of help me process. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, that's a very uh, vulnerable way to begin, and we really appreciate that for sure. Because um, I, I do think healing is a very deep and personal topic, and in a lot of ways, that's why I wanted to talk to you, because you bring such a unique perspective, and we're very grateful for you helping us kind of navigate through what healing really means. Um, but you, you talked a little bit about uh, some of the mental health obstacles you faced, but, and you touched on it just there at the end, but I, I'm just wondering why, why do you think healing is so critical now, maybe more than ever? Why it's, why has it become so important to you? Yeah, it's, it, it's funny because it is something that I, was raised in within Pentecostalism. So if you look at global Pentecostalism, often what people will point to is speaking in tongues, a spiritual gift that you find in scripture that tends to be uh, understood as a primary characteristic of the movement. But what we really find is globally, it tends to be around healing. I can even remember growing up and people having different issues coming up for prayer and people laying their hands on them, and then truly hoping and expecting for a miracle. I still believe in this. That Does it always happen in the way that we desire? I, I don't think so, but I also think that part of that is our even baseline understanding of what we think we are and who we mm -hmm. think is, or what we think our place in this world is. So, this type of healing, it's something that I continue to experience. And there, there's a book, it, it's not exactly on this topic, but I think the title is good by Henry Nouwen called The Wounded Healer. Mm. And, and, it, and it's sort of a process for me that 
I, I think there's a lot of stories out there that people are like, oh my goodness, this horrible thing happened. And now everything is awesome. And then I even think those stories are inspirational, mm-hmm. but it's kind of like, well, I can't wait till my story gets to awesome. <laughs> I actually think that's one of our biggest hurdles to mental health is that we keep thinking there's an awesome at the other mm-hmm. end and that where we are is the obstacle. And so for me, even I, I still have some sort of general anxiety disorder and, and people would even ask me, Hey, did you get over depression? And I'll say, no, it is forever a part of me. It is a wow. part of the way that I understand the world. And because <laughs> I was trying to get over it was the reason that I could never find a way to live in the presence with it. So mm. just a quick side note on that. I remember one of the the most difficult moments um, of that experience for me in that way I was experiencing it is I got a phone call from somebody that's really close to me, a family member. And they were like, oh my goodness, you got into school. Everything's worked out. Everything is going great. You should be doing awesome now because they knew that I was having a tough time. That sounds very positive. <laughs> wow, you should be doing great now. And it was the thing that probably drove me into the deepest part of it because I thought I should be doing well. Right. I can't even point to something that tons of people around the world are experiencing that I won't or haven't. There's nothing that I can point to that should be the problem. So what's the problem? Well, it must be me. And mm-hmm. it was just a deep uh, difficulty. And I've even heard students and they'll say, I, I go to, I think therapists are great. I have gone t- to them. <laughs> They're great. Uh, so this is a, a one-time occurrence, but they would even say to me, cause I'll, I'll meet as a chaplain, I meet with students. That's one of the main things that I do. And they'll say that they struggle because every time they, they see their therapist, they say, Hey, are you doing any better? Oh, wow. And that's a normal question. But it also is this strange place of self-reflection. Where am I now? And then this issue with, do I feel normal? Well, if I don't, then what? And and so it's almost this strange, In it's not meant to be, but it ends up being a really hurtful question. Am I mm-hmm. doing better? So I think this healing is I want... I feel like this little bit that I have been able to experience with so many people that are loving and others who have shared these experiences that that I've talked to is I I just think there's a little bit of a different approach to the topic than are we feeling better? Are we Mm -hmm. healed? Meaning we were broken maybe and now we're whole. Is, Is that even a healthy framework mentally? for us to process the world in these types of dualities. Are you doing good or bad? I don't know. I mean, how, how much of our day is good or bad? It's like both always and neither. Right. But I think there are some things particularly within, at least in my experience, within mental health that has felt fairly dualistic in, in my experience in trying to eliminate those and, and view things a little bit differently. So, I even think this term healing is something that could be maybe recontextualized. And that's why that word continuous, I think it's good rather than that it's a destination. I, I think it's even a process. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Well, and you you sent me this quote that I because uh, I asked you what what you really meant by healing because I I think we could take it in a number of ways. We're gonna ask. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, but you emailed me this thing that I thought was really beautiful, and it said, um, "So our healing is never done. In fact, health isn't really ever our goal. Instead, it is to be where we are, experiencing the life we have here and now." And I think that dovetails nicely into what you were just saying about why um, healing is so important because I, I think it's shifting it from like being cured to being cognizant if that makes sense yeah. um, because I don't I don't think you ever get over things you just learn how to reframe or recontextualize them and live with them in a productive way is that kind of how you've experienced it is that what you meant by that <clears throat> yeah I, I think that's that's exactly right. And, and and there's a lot of reasons that I have felt compelled toward this toward this type of idea. And one of probably the biggest reasons that this different way of thinking has been so inspiring was one of my first classes when I was doing uh, my PhD was on a class called uh, Taoist Buddhist non-dualism. And I wanted to study East Asian religion and philosophy because I had grown up within, of course, Christianity, and not that all Abrahamic being Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are the same. Of course, they're not at all. But I felt like I, I sort of understood that way of processing the world. There was so much more <clears throat> that I could learn, of course, but I thought there was this opportunity to study uh, a slightly different way of viewing the world with these different philosophies and religions that, you know, a large percentage of humans have always had a baseline of what the world means and how they exist within it. So in this class, we started to look at dualities. And Buddhism, still a religion that I, I infuse and, and really include within whatever my Christian practices are. It, it's been really uh, formational to me and for me, especially as I was trying to understand my depression, what that even meant. Mm. But in it, just for the most basic <laughs> 1.0 Buddhism, is there are these things called the Four Noble Truths. And the first one, and these are going to be a little bit of my own renditions of them, is that all life is suffering. And this is a rough start. Like, <laughs> people aren't like, yeah, I'm going to be a part of this. Uh, we get to the third one, and there's going to be a good news. Uh -huh. But all life is suffering. The reason that it is suffering is because we tend to want it to be different than it is. Mm -hmm. So I tend to have a problem of looking into the future. I don't know why, it's my natural way of viewing the world, that I'm interested in what's next. That's a, a natural thing that my a cognition tends toward. Some people tend to look back. So for me, I can be very interested in what is next, which means wherever I am is the thing that is in the way of what is next. Of course, if we're looking back, then we reflect and we wish that things were as they used to be. Of course, this can be in many different shapes and in different forms. But life is suffering because we struggle to accept that we are not in control. Mm. Because I'm looking into the future, 
and I try to process every possible outcome, it is not because I'm like, wow, way to really think it through, Joel. That's really responsible. It's more like, all right, now I've got everything under control. Mm-hmm. I've planned this. My calendar is set. I know I can do everything. But inevitably, we can't. So we suffer. The second noble truth is that we suffer because we crave or we desire things. So we might, this may be the most low level thing. Let's say that you're sick. We all get sick. It's just a natural part of life. Well, that's just reality. It's uncomfortable, but we're not yet suffering. We suffer because we wish we weren't sick. And so we think this is unfair. Who gave this to me? And we start to have these deeper thoughts that we just sort of get caught in our mind. Or maybe we're about to go to sleep And then something sort of pops up into our head and then we can't sleep because now we're worried about this thing we have to do tomorrow. And we're like attaching to it and now we're creating it into this big difficult thing because we desire for it to be over or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Even if we get to the thing that we thought we desired for the case of what I was saying earlier, getting this amazing opportunity to be a pastor of a great church. Well, even if we got whatever we thought we needed to make our life meaningful, then we realize this this isn't what I thought. Like, I, I thought this was the top of the mountain, and then you just live in some sort of nirvana, you know, everything is unbelievable, and then we find that it's not. Or maybe for you, you get to the top of your company, and everybody thinks you're amazing, because you are, but then you realize the pressure to keep being amazing. I remember I was on staff at a church and this person used to always tell everybody, Joel is hilarious. And she'd be like, and then look at me and I'm standing (laughs) with strangers. And I'm like, I can't do anything funny. (laughs) This is too much pressure. (laughs) Yeah. Luckily I have a stand up bit ready to go. Hey, where's everybody from? So, um, that sort of even, let's say that you're known for something And that's what we think we want. And then we have to keep it going or we wish we were there and we're always sort of fluctuating between the two. So we have these desires and then we struggle. Mm -hmm. And then the sort of last thing is, but there is hope. This is always the good news in, in religions and philosophies. And the hope is sort of what you were getting at. What if there weren't dualities of there is this good thing and this bad thing, but what if in this present moment, there is the fullness of reality? What if if we could eliminate all the things we're thinking about for later or in the past and just be here? In my Christianity, this is where my Pentecostalism comes in. We always talk about the movement of the spirit. The spirit is here. The reason we miss the spirit that we believe is permeating all reality is because we're somewhere else. Mm. So even for me, sort of eliminating those dualities and realizing that this present is where true life, whatever that means is. So if we keep pursuing health indirectly, it causes our suffering because we'll not feel well and then we're going to fight to feel better. Mm -hmm. And so whenever we have a target or an idea that we have to maintain or achieve, then according at least to Buddhists, that's going to be the very cause of our suffering. 
And so even when we think we're going to pursue something with all the best intentions, if we're not careful, it's going to end up being the thing that could potentially cause us the most pain and confusion because it can't, it, it can never produce what we're actually needing in that moment. Hmm. So for me, that class was really important. And then one other quick thing here. So another quick moment in my life, I'm doing a PhD. I had been sick and had a swollen lymph node in my neck and it wasn't going down. I took antibiotics. I wasn't sure what it was. They took um, a sample from it. They're like, it's inconclusive. We need to uh, take it out and uh, test it to see if it's cancer. Fantastic. Um, processing the world through that was interesting. Of course, realizing, hey, much better people than me have died much younger. There's nothing that is deserved here. So even trying to imagine what that means with three little kids and, of mm. course, married, uh, trying to process that. I was reading a Buddhist monk at the time named Thich Nhat Hanh. He just recently passed away within the past couple of years, Vietnamese. He tells this story during the Vietnam War in one of his books about trying to help people escape uh, the conflict illegally, smuggling citizens out of, this is quote fingers <laughs> for those listening, air yeah. quote fingers, um, out of Vietnam. So it's illegal. So he has these boats, he's taking all these people. And this is, a, of course, a big deal trying to save lives, but it's illegal. So he gets pulled into a port and they're saying, you can't do this. You, you're not allowed. Everything's kind of falling apart. The boats are having issues. The food is problematic to get to these people who are hungry. I'm reading this story as I'm waiting to get the MRI on my neck. Everybody around me has these major events. With three kids, it was me alone. The weight of it is really enormous. Hearing again what, what other people are kind of struggling with. And then in the book, as I'm reading this, sitting there in the waiting room, Thich Nhat Hanh says he realized if he could not have peace there on that dock where everything is falling apart, he never will. Mm. And what I realized is that we tend to live a once this happens then type of life. Mm. Like once this uh, job works out, then everything is going to be fine. Or however we process that sort of, and we all do this every day. There's some future something that once we're there, everything's going to work out. But he said, if I can't have peace now in the midst of chaos, then I never can. And then trying to process that and being present. So I think that healing peace has also been a part of my story these types of movements of not pursuing the health, but pursuing the being present to what the world is offering now. Mm. And and again, not to dualize that. Well, is that good or bad? Well, it it is present because the only way that we can even judge what's good or bad is if we step out of the moment, objectify it against another moment, and then judge it for its value. Well, now we've sort of left this space that we have been given right now. So that that's sort of the the background of, of that thought, at least. Mm. Well, I think what's interesting about um, 
all of that is that healing, uh, I think we think of healing as we we get some sort of physical, uh, perhaps emotional infliction. Uh, I think we we don't feel like we we don't understand why it's happened to us. We are immediately seeking a way to have it removed from our life. Um, and I think we are aware of the healing that needs to happen. You know what I mean? But then I think there's also another kind of healing that needs to happen that we're not aware of. And I'm wondering how you think about healing from the parts of our lives that we maybe are aware of and we're unaware of. This is the part that I think we struggle with as humans at times with that type of dual foundation is that we don't even know that some of our healing is brought on by assuming the way we view the world is the truth, is just the the reality. I'm not doing anything. I'm just I'm just processing the world, but I don't realize I'm processing it through a particular lens. So whenever we even have tough questions about faith or life, whenever we force them through an actual philosophical construct, first, even as we approach, let's say, our faith, if regardless of what it is, we think we're just adopting whatever we read, in this case, in the Bible. But it's it's actually having to first be adopted into a Western construct. And so I think this happens a lot of us struggling with why would things happen the way mm-hmm. that they, what, what mm-hmm. is what the struggle? And, and we kind of allow it to weigh on us and we don't even know why, but you'll hear it. I've, I've heard so many students even talk about their struggle with faith because certain aspects just don't make sense to them. I even had a student in one class and he was saying, that he and and I was I <laughs> I was very much encouraging any thought. There's no Christian. There's no thought that I was uh, trying to communicate. But he was really um, oppositional toward Christianity. And you know what? That's completely reasonable view to hold. But after a while, I said, I wonder if you are actually opposed to it or the the ways in which it's been explained or you've seen it displayed. And even if we just reframe things, how it can change completely, because then mm-hmm. he sort of thought about it and he was like, I guess I'm not actually opposed to Christianity, but these ways in which he's seen it displayed. He also, he had said that he he holds to no religion, which is again, a completely reasonable way to uh, go through life in a very healthy way. But... He talked about how he regularly is mindful and he meditates. And then when we learned about Buddhism, he was like, I might be a Buddhist. (laughs) And so, again, just even when we slowly open up the possibility that maybe there are other ways to view the world, that we might be able to discover healthier ways to live. And I know for me growing up, it was a fairly long road because it was sort of that notion in your faith of a slippery slope. If we've ever heard that, like, Mm -hmm. oh, goodness, if you don't believe this, then like, you know, then nothing is real. So it can be very scary and and feel very much like you're in a vulnerable position. But I really think that all of the resources are within, especially Christianity, that we find in these other religions 
when viewed differently. So it, I think that's where this sort of we're unaware of some of our pain. Mm. And a Buddhist would say, because you keep thinking you exist inherently in the universe. But for you, Ryan, everything about you, every bit of who you are is interdependent with other things. If not for your parents, of course, there's no you. But nothing that's a part of your body now is uniquely you. It's it's parts of the universe that are in this form in this moment. But we keep believing that we're isolated and we have to control ourselves. It's my faith. It's my life. Mm-hmm. And, and so we have this weight that we're not even aware of. And I think it's often just based on the way we understand ourselves in the world. Hmm. Like you had said that we have this thing that we're trying to obtain, like health or mental wellness, like it's something I can achieve. So I think we see the unhealth, but I, I don't know if we always have enough resources on alternatives to when we realize there's an issue. Hmm. Well, and I think the, again, the healing piece is that we arrive at wellness somehow, spiritual, emotional, physical, uh, <laughs> existential wellness. Like yeah. we, we arrive at a kind of understanding and really that we've kind of accumulated enough wisdom that we see things. And it's almost like we have enough composure that we don't get rattled. Does that make sense? Like no matter what comes at my, my way, I've already experienced something like this. So it doesn't actually affect me as deeply as it might. Um, And I I guess I'm interested about that because healing can take on so many different, different, uh, different parts of our lives. You've talked a lot about uh, emotional and mental and, and kind of spiritual healing and then the healing that we're aware of and the healing we may not be aware of. Um, but this other thing you you mentioned to me was a, uh, this book by Lisa Miller that called The Awakened Brain. I haven't read it in its totality. But what I think is interesting about it is that it's connecting these kind of scientific evidence with spiritual capacity, let's say. Um, and really, the, the book seems to be arguing um, that if, if we can find a find... Uh, ways to be more spiritual within our lives, if we can kind of pursue healing in a productive way, uh, we might find like this quest towards a more inspired life. But I wanted to ask you about about that kind of sentiment that do you feel like having a more holistic understanding of our spirituality and of the process of healing in which we need to go through can help us lead more productive and inspired lives? I, I think you're exactly right of, of, you know, we, we experience the world and then we respond to it. Like maybe I'm upset. Well, this is, I think some of the beauty of this conversation of being present, we're upset because I created an expectation Mm. and because I created an expectation, then this is going to most likely we tend to have a larger expectation than is possible for it to achieve, whatever the situation is. So because of that, we keep having a response to the world that just exists as it does. That something happens that is not ideal is partially because I created an ideal. Even if it is an ideal because it 
it results in some sort of discomfort for me in a real sense. Well, that is happening, though. Because I wish it didn't doesn't change the fact that it's happening. Mm -hmm. And if we're ever present, there's even research on this of being present for those who uh, struggle with uh, different illnesses that just repeatedly take a toll on their body. When it's when you're present to it, that there is a level of ease in the pain, because a lot of it we even construct wishing that it didn't exist. And so this book, I thought what's so helpful, and it's exactly to your point, is sometimes we can get into these conversations, especially within a type of academic or reasonable society, and they would think like, this is fine, like, okay, Buddhism, Christianity, like that's for some people, but for those of us that are well-reasoned, this, this isn't anything at all. And what I love about Lisa's book, and we also find this in Harold uh, Koenig, his research, there's a lot out of Boston University also dealing with neuroscience and religion, is this isn't some strange thought or philosophy detached from reality. So Lisa uh, Miller and her research is looking at this idea that we all inherently, and she doesn't get into like, how did it get there? And let's have these big ontological questions of what is the being? None of that. But the research is showing that we all seem to have a spiritual aspect of our brain that needs cultivating. This isn't something that is detached in a private setting, and then we're like a normal person, and then privately we could have some spirituality, but that we all need it. And in her research, at least, and these others who are doing similar research, it is showing that it is the best deterrent of depression and anxiety of almost any other factor, possible factor, mm. whether it was our family or our economic level. It is our connection to the notion that there is something larger that is good, that we have mm. some sort of connection with others. Mm -hmm. This could be at your church. This could be on a hike where we just have a moment of recognition that there is more that is happening here. Or something that I would almost argue that we've all had where we just feel almost whole or this visceral, we couldn't really explain it, but something just feels like there's more connection. And her point that she's trying to make in the book is that we have at times a two tracks of our cognition. One is achievement. And this is where we're getting stuck. I need to achieve, achieve, achieve. Right. If I can achieve enough, when I feel depressed or anxious, then I could overcome it. It's almost like then anxiety and depression and other issues that we have are another achievement that we can conquer. So we achieve, achieve, and the research suggests that that doesn't leave us anywhere but with greater mental uh, stress. A lot of the statistics, stats, I'll just say, statistics is too hard, <laughs> is that... <laughs> Uh, one of the the populations that that and this is I know a, a really sensitive issue. I don't mean to bring it up lightly, but uh, that end up reporting within the broad spectrum of public health of suicide are older men, which would be surprising, except to say I think a lot of people get to the end and they realize the stuff that I thought I could achieve and feel something is not there. Hmm. And she is pointing to research that shows that that's true. But we have this awakened brain that allows us to see our interconnection, that maybe it, it shows that the universe is good, 
And she's really supporting the notion that we need to integrate this into society. So if we have like, hey, we should all exercise and eat healthy, and we realize that that's better for us, we should also invest in our spirituality as a scientific thing that has value and meaning. Hmm. And whether that leads to a good life or not, however defined, it can help us to have a mental state that allows us to be more present and allows us to be our best self for those around us. So I really appreciate this book because she's putting the science behind it. And she even reports that at different times, colleagues have thought, what is this? What is this study? This, this You're missing. It's really political or it's really this other thing. But no, it seems that we're all hungry for this. And I think it's tragic that we're a little bit in a window where I don't know if spirituality is given a lot of space. Even as a chaplain, I think, or as a professor, when I taught religion, most students don't want to self-identify with uh, religion in particular, but often even with a spirituality, almost as though that's that's a weakness. And this is reporting, this is our greatest strength. Mm. And so I appreciate that piece that, again, that more scientific aspect that that supports it with actual studies, really. Mm. Well, the, um, I think you've made a compelling case to read it. Uh, so thank you for that. That was the best Goodreads review uh, ever, ever professed. Um, well, I think I, I want to go to this last question because I, I, I do want to move it to something. Uh, because I think that's what the Miller book promises is that there's this kind of um, awakened part of us that seems to be a little more aware of the healing that we may need in our lives. And I think it just helps us to kind of raise our attention, and I'm simplifying it, of course, um, and be a little less distracted and a little more intentional. And I, I'm thinking about this because there's this article that's um, kind of gone viral. You may have seen it in the New York Times about uh, we need to focus like it's 1990. And it's, it's all about uh, these studies that there was one study done in 2004, and I think it was like the average uh, human attention span at work was like two and a half minutes. Sure. And the same study was just redone, you know, maybe 10 years, 20 years later, I can't remember. And it's now 75 seconds. So that means that we can only do things at work for 75 seconds at a time. And if you think about it, it sounds preposterous until you sit down and time yourself. You're like, I'm writing this email. Oh, I'm checking my phone. Oh, meeting coming up. Oh, I just got a text. Oh, my watch is pinging. Oh, time to stand up. You know what I mean? Oh, I have to go to the bathroom. Oh, I need another coffee. Whatever. No, no, no. Do a couple more. <laughs> that was a lot. That was a lot of examples I just gave. No, I um, right, though, for sure. But anyway, there's, I, I, I guess what I want to move to in the practical part is like, you're talking about that maybe the need scientifically for uh, a kind of spiritual aspect to our lives um in whatever shape that takes for people um i think you and i uh i mean went to the same church i think we feel similarly um in our, our faith in, in christianity but but i think it's really easy to get distracted and not focus on it and just maybe put it on the back burner put it on something you do an hour a week on sundays 
um, and it becomes it just loses its effectiveness in a way because we're not continually focusing on it. And that's why I like the continuous part of your lesson. That's a big long winded way of me leading to this last question about being pragmatic, because I, I think if people listen to this, uh, I think there's a real a, a strong argument that two things. One is that being more present minded is actually more healthy. Um, it's great to be driven and have goals and be aspirational, but it feels like it also can create a lot of um, angst, a lot of unfulfillment, a lot of maybe um, just dissatisfaction with your current condition. And it seems like we may need some, I don't know if they're exercises or if they are mindsets or ways to shift our thinking that maybe you could speak to that would help us to be kind of more present and help us to kind of restart this process of, of healing. Yeah, and I'll I'll wrap in a final sort of story to this because I think it's helpful. And 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 I think I think yes, there's many things that we can do. And I I even want to encourage people to consider bodily practices, whether it's hiking or some sort of a position that we adopt within Christianity, and, and this isn't meant to be negative toward Christianity, but there's not a whole lot of physical practices. It might be reading the Bible or prayer, and maybe that's in a certain posture, but I think there's also a lot of other religions and philosophies that that incorporate the body better, which I'll get into in a second. But So just a quick where I am today, because I know everybody's like, where is this guy today? <laughs> Stop. They, yeah. They're still listening, so I'm it sure they're still. It was 75 seconds, and they shut it off. So. <laughs> I just made the argument. If you can't answer, unless. So. Anyway, keep going. Keep going. But honestly, really, you're right. After one email, I'm like, I need a break. But uh, so, so I'm I'm learning to experience the world differently. Uh, when I was at Georgetown and the depression sort of continued to evolve into other ways of being. And what Buddhism really teaches us is reality is arising and falling. So even when there's something really difficult, we tend to attach to it and then we keep letting it be difficult. But if we would just let it all go, then that's also going to change. The universe is only change. There's nothing that you can think of that isn't constantly changing. And this is the same with everything. Mm. And so our goal is really to move with the change. And so I felt mm. like I was starting to find some of those rhythms to try to adopt. And again, a lot of that is mental, even of, hey, this is tough, but not allowing it to be days difficult. Maybe it's just tough right now and then moving through it. So that, that all sort of was continuing and life was progressing and all sorts of things were happening in, in our personal lives. But of course, uh, in this day and age, the, the pandemic is always going to be a part of a conversation. And whenever it happened, we were living in a dorm because I was a chaplain uh, across the street from the hospital where my wife was working. Of course, nobody knows anything what's happening in the world. It was so chaotic, as, as everybody remembers. But one of the biggest issues with the pandemic was breathing. This is how we're not going to make it. And again, this is going to get to your question. Uh, 
I didn't know, but I have a pretty bad allergy to dust. And then I had a pretty big sinus issue that needed to be addressed. But now I'm inside all day in an old dorm. I could not breathe through my nose and it was difficult at all. So I had, if anybody got to do one of the early COVID tests, that was the worst. If you did it, you know, they had the the like Q-tip a foot long and it touches the back of your skull and takes some debris. And then you can't do math anymore. No, I don't know. It was just difficult. Right. But they're like, hey, you don't have it. Okay, cool. Well, I still can't breathe. So at this time then, I was starting to feel some of the depression come. But I switched. There was some sort of switch that kind of went off that said, I'm, I am not going to be depressed. Because depression, at least for me, was sort of a feeling of nothing really matters. I, I don't feel anything toward anything. If I were to not make it another day, that's the way it is. And, and, mm. and it was tough, so I didn't want that. So I sort of, something went off in my brain of you must survive at all costs. So everything was an emergency. If anybody had told me before, like, oh, I had a panic attack, I'd be like, oh, nuts. No, it was different than anything that I would ever be prepared for. Like between us and the internet, there was definitely a night that I thought, I'm gonna need to go get admitted to the hospital. Mm -hmm. It was like my brain just got stuck in fight or flight. Like just couldn't get out of the, there's an emergency. Like the alarm is just being uh, rang constantly. So, you know, trying to figure out what in the world that is, noticing, of course, that I have this allergy helps getting some medicine, talking to people, all of that helped. But one thing that I also adopted that that I am sort of getting around to that I think is a practice is I realized that my mind was pretty rigid. There's an emergency. The world is in danger. I am. My family is. Mm-hmm. And so the more rigid it got, then the more the anxiety was there. And and of course, I realize, as we all do, that mind and body are not detached. I mean, I was feeling physically sick because of my anxiety and depression when when that was uh, was was particularly pronounced. So I realized one thing that I needed to do was to become more flexible, literally. And so mm-hmm. I did yoga every day. I did it for three straight months recently for the same situation. Mm. The more flexible my body, the more flexible my brain. And my mm. thing, those are completely detached. They are not detached. <laughs> the only reason we think they are is because we've adopted a philosophy that they're detached. If we are rigid in our body, it's not surprising that we get rigid in our mind. And this is one of my favorite things in Taoism. They they talk about the beauty and, and strength of water. Often we think we have to be strong. We think of like a stick, like, oh, it's very strong. It can withstand a lot. But once it gets under enough pressure, it snaps. Water flowing, if you put a rock in the way, it does not care. It just finds the next path. Hmm. There's no worry. It just moves wherever there is to move. And that's good. It's not even judged as anything. It's just the way in which things are moving. 
So I decided I really need to start becoming more flexible. So I've done yoga. I've read a lot of books within Indian philosophy because I want to even understand the processes and um, doing my best to uh, continue to do that. Even today, I taught it. So that was also nice that I, I got to invest in it more. Wow. But I realized that um, mentally I needed to practice different forms of mindfulness. Uh, I always remember there was uh, this Buddhist who would say that you can know a lot about Buddhism, but until you practice it, you don't know it. This has always annoys me the most with people who study, study, quote fingers, <laughs> Pentecostalism, and they're like, I went to this service and it was crazy. Okay, maybe, maybe. But if you're not in it, then you don't know what's happening. Mm-hmm. So I knew that I needed to experience these things too. So I started to practice mindfulness. And I just adopted probably the most ridiculously capitalist way of doing it. And I got uh, an app for it. But I needed to follow my breathing. One, because I was afraid. Because I kept being afraid I would stop breathing. Because I felt like I couldn't breathe. Mm-hmm. Our breathing, it's this movement. Are, are you aware you're breathing right now, Ryan? Are you even aware of that? Of course not. Of course we're not aware of that. <laughs> we're doing something else. Our, bri- our brain is elsewhere. This is why almost every religion has a breathing practice. You are here. You're breathing mm-hmm. here. And so I started to do those two things. And because of my particular background, I will listen to what could be de- described as charismatic type music. And I try to feel it. And I try to let myself, if I am so inclined to move, however that might be, then I do. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to get into the rhythms of what I believe within my Christianity are the movements of the spirit. I think the spirit is fluid. I think the spirit is present. I think it feels more than it reasons. And I'm not trying to create a duality between reason and emotion, but we first are. And then I reason out of my isness, we might say. So even trying to practice that, of being present, even things like with my kids, and I don't, of course, I probably fail as often as I succeed, but even when there's like a conflict, let's just be here and not, we did this yesterday. No, 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 we're here now. And and this is what we are. How can we show love and kindness in this space? So my actual pragmatic practices. Hey, there's different things for different people. If you get some sort of emotion out of hiking or biking or working out, then I would say do that fully there. Mm -hmm. Notice what it is. There's even within Buddhism walking meditation. (laughs) I never notice I'm walking because I'm going somewhere. We're not walking nowhere. So I'm thinking of where I'm going, but no, 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 you are here walking. And so there's different uh, methods and not all of them will fit each person. But for me, I think literally becoming more flexible has helped my mind become more flexible. When mm, it feels like there's emergency, there's this pressure building, building, you know, I can move out of it. I can almost do a split, Ryan. <laughs> almost <laughs> is a little bit of a stretch. <laughs> 
Like, no pun also, intended. Terrible dad joke on accident. Yeah. <laughs> I said Abigail. I'm dadtastic. And she she's my 13-year-old. She did not like that. Um, but, like, literally flexible. But also, I need to practice being mindful. It doesn't just happen. Even within Buddhism, it's so funny because so much of it is about mindfulness, but they keep telling you how to, which implies we don't do a good job of practicing. And if you want to say, well, that's silly, it's Buddhism. Okay. The Bible says pray without ceasing. That's crazy. Who has done that? Okay. Let me tell you, I've got a little bit of a secret. If you're present to the spirit that is moving now, that is how we pray without ceasing. Hmm. That is our movement with among, through the Spirit, is this presence, this flexibility. It's the Spirit we hear is like the wind. We don't know where it's going. We don't control it. Mm -hmm. We move with it. It's this saying that Buddhists have of, you know, we, we tend to have all these things in our lives we're trying to control and sort of hold, almost like a big hug. You're trying to keep them all up. And we're like, finally, I have it. And they say, no, no, no. The only way you'll ever be free is when you just let it all go. Yeah. And if you've ever been in a church service, you've heard that. Just let it go. Mm -hmm. But I think there's more to that <laughs> truth than I probably realized until later. And I think it is our security is not being secure in ourself. It's our security is being flexible to move where we are and not have to dictate where we're going. Almost mm -hmm. all the times I talk to students and they're depressed, it's because their trajectory that they created doesn't feel like it is gonna be achieved. But I didn't do well in that test, which means I won't graduate, meaning I won't get this internship, meaning I won't. It's like a 50 year plan because they, they struggled on a test. And it's because we keep needing to be in control. But I think we have practices that we can start to adopt to say, what if I really thought that I could move with the spirit and I truly believe that or be present to this moment. Hmm. So I think there's a lot of stuff that people can do and it would be almost to test and see where those are for you. But, but I know that those are some practices that I still do today and I, I will still feel anxious. So we create a, I'm anxious. I need to distract, distract, get my phone. Let me do something. I got to get this out of my mind, but then it comes back and it comes back. Buddhism, remember, there's no dualities. That's a false uh, construct. If there's anxiety, it, it implies the possibility for there not to be anxiety. And one of the Buddhist lessons, and I think this is true in many other philosophies and religions, our healing is actually when we're present to it, when we realize it's happening. Mm -hmm. Thich Nhat Hanh would talk about anger. He would say when he feels anger, let's even say rage, you say and maybe we wouldn't do this, but he says, hello, anger. Like, I noticed that you're there, and I'm not fighting you. This is happening. And when we do that, it allows it to be what it is, and it also, remember, everything arises and falls, and it will fall. When we distract ourselves, we attach to it as an enemy, and then we keep fighting it, as opposed mm -hmm. to letting it naturally kind of move with the spirit. Because we hear that the spirit, if we believe the Bible, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Freedom because we move with the spirit. We allow the things to come and go. And that's our healing. Hmm. So that's sort of the big roundabout things that I would say. And practices that are unique to me, but maybe they're helpful for somebody else out there. Hopefully they are. Yeah. <laughs>
Well, it's been very helpful uh, just to listen uh, to all of this, Joel. Uh, there's a lot to say, and I think you've said all of it. I, <laughs> I, I, uh, I really appreciate this um, a lot as someone who's constantly thinking uh, into the future and struggling with not achieving goals or things I've set out for myself um, or someone who struggles with unfulfillment and and looking at a life that feels incredibly blessed in a million ways and it feels like you're ungrateful somehow because you're not acknowledging all the things you do have uh, but I do appreciate especially that that idea that we could be more fluid we could be more flexible we could be like water in a way as a as a really provocative metaphor for how we might heal and how the process of healing and and becoming literally more flexible uh in body and mind i think is a really powerful way to to think about a lot of this so thank you for your time and putting that all together in such a cogent way and uh i think this will be one that people really really latch on to and enjoy and um really appreciate so thank you for your time yeah it's again my pleasure thanks for setting this up it's it's you know all of these unique stories that are out there and hopefully we can hear and learn from each other and like you are doing sharing these lessons with all of us so appreciate it yeah thank you and uh, we'll talk soon I think the podcast is best when someone is as vulnerable and honest as Joel just was. To speak with such grace and just to navigate the the mental and the spiritual, the physical and the emotional creates a real sense of hope and an empathy for anyone who's struggling with depression or anxiety. Covered a lot of ground. Uh, hope you found yourself resonating with a lot of the, the points about expectation or, or future thinking and being present, I know I did. Um, there were so many notes to comment on, but this episode is running a little long. <laughs> but I, I just couldn't cut anything. Yeah, I just thought it was too important and, and really meaningful. Um, but I just wanted to end with the, the quote he shared that healing is never done. In fact, health isn't really our goal. Instead, we are to be where we are experiencing the life we have here and now. As always, we are so grateful for your time and thank you for listening. We have just two episodes left in the season. Uh, next week, we're speaking with my mentor um, who served me in so many amazing ways. Uh, and then finally, the final week with someone I've always wanted to interview. Um, that is a hook. Uh, so we will see you back for the final two episodes um, and hopefully more great lessons full of meaning waiting to be applied. This is the Everything is Lessons podcast. <laughs>